The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, but he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will, be, will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. Where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's Sundays like this that I kind of wish we didn't have to stick with the lectionary. <laughs> I take great pride that in 2018, we choose to gather in a purple congregation. I personally even feel called to serve in this kind of congregation. No, I'm not referring to a previous rector being called to the Episcopacy, not that kind of purple, but a congregation that is filled with people who identify with red and blue. No, not Alabama and Auburn fans. A purple congregation, a place where Democrats and Republicans together find strength and courage, pardon and renewal. In the truly Anglican sense, it is the via media or the middle way, a place that holds competing interests beautifully together in a tension that can be rarely resolved except through the mystery of the revelation of Christ. And that is a good and beautiful thing. I need to be very clear from the get-go. I understand that some people will be angry if I don't bring up what is taking place in the world. 
and others will be equally upset if I do. And I try to hold the privilege of this pulpit with the utmost seriousness and faithfulness to each and every one of you. And what I promise for you today is this is not a political sermon. I will not resolve any of the underlying issues of our common life together in the secular world. As always, I aim to preach a theological sermon, one that inspires all of us into a deeper relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is my goal today. But I do think the events of this last week, in light of our readings, both the Old Testament, which is where I'm going to dwell today, and even our gospel, give us some ways of framing what it means to live a life grounded in the love of God. But to get there, you have to follow with me through a little bit of reflection on last week. Now I'm not going, I'm not here to tell you what I believe or who is right. My role is only to draw attention to that which I am observing. That is, our political beliefs shape how we respond to information, how we hear stories, and more importantly, what we believe. In this way, our political motivation has the ability to shape our identity. What I've observed is interesting to me. Now granted, what I'm observing is really just the positions that people hold on social media and how they debate. And so it's not a scientific study. What I observed was that people's minds were already decided based on the allegiance of their policies. For the most part, it seemed to me that if you believe Judge Kavanaugh to be telling the truth, it is likely that you desire for him to be confirmed in the Supreme Court. And if you believe Dr. Ford to be telling the truth, it is also likely that you already oppose Kavanaugh for being confirmed. And if this is true, if this observation is mostly true, that it means our political beliefs impact how we hear and listen to others and what we take away. This shapes our identity. Y'all follow me? Okay. Now I want you to pause and I want you to hold that framework in the back as I tell you a story that needs much more background and context than our Old Testament provides today. The story of Esther, it invites us into the world of the Jews in Persia during the period of the diaspora, shortly after the Babylonian exile. Now what is happening at this stage of history is Persia has conquered Babylon, which if you recall from your Old Testament history, that is where the Jews have been exiled. So they're living in Babylon and Persia takes over. And so the story of Esther, the tribe of Judah, they're allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now, this probably is not a surprise to any of you, but if you're returning home after two or three generations of living abroad, 
it is likely or nearly impossible for you to maintain that cultural sense of identity. People would have abandoned their customs and traditions as they were influenced by outsiders. Thus, the struggle of maintaining a cultural identity abroad is born. And Esther directly raises this question. What does it mean to be Jewish in a foreign land? Now, the setting of Esther is in a foreign court. In the palace of the Persian king, it is an incredible, it's a rich story, it's exciting. The queen, Vashti, she refuses to go before the king, and her refusal infuriates him, and there is this call for new leadership. There is opportunity for a new person to rise to power as the king wants a new queen. And so all the beautiful young women in the land are brought forth, Each candidate is given cosmetic treatment. I've often joked that this is the first instance of plastic surgery in the Bible. It's significant because it means that for Esther to become queen, she has to change her appearance by assimilating to the Persian culture. Her elevation to queen is contingent on passing as a Persian. She has to hide her Jewishness. Now within the kingdom of Persia, this intense rivalry is born between Esther's uncle Mordecai and his arch nemesis Haman, the highest ranking official in the king's court. So you can see how this is climaxing to this point where we reach in our scriptures today. Haman's hatred for Mordecai is so deep that he builds a gallow that is 50 cubits high, that's 77 feet tall. The exaggeration points to his hatred. Upon learning of Mordecai's Jewish background, Haman plots to destroy all of the Jewish people throughout the Persian Empire, as he claims the people of Mordecai. In the story of Esther, the Jewish people are facing genocide at the hands of Haman. And the story suggests that we are to believe that annihilation is the threat of forgetting one's identity. Queen Esther, upon assimilating into foreign culture, must remember her own own heritage and her identity or else her people will forever be lost. It is in the seventh chapter of Esther that she finally unveils her Jewish identity to the king, saving the lives of all her people. And interestingly enough, Haman dies at the device that he builds with his own hands. The story of Esther, forgetting one's identity leads to annihilation. Forgetting who we are leads to our extinction. To move back to this week, in the words of a friend, a fellow priest friend of mine, our political citizenship is penultimate. Our ultimate allegiance lies with that heavenly country, the kingdom of God. 
that place that we can find when we gather here to welcome God and each other into our lives and to help usher in the reign of God. While certainly our Christian identity impacts how we vote, our ultimate identity should be the image of God that is made manifest within each of us. Our ultimate identity must be as children of God, the body of Christ gathered here, broken together and united. Queen Esther's story makes us ask the question to apply what it means to the Jewish people to us. If we fail to allow our Christian identity to define us, will our faith become extinct? If our citizenship is penultimate and our allegiance to our faith is ultimate, the question for all of us, how do we allow our Christian identity to shape and inform how we vote, how we listen, how we enter into relationship with others, and how we are committed to living this earthly life? Now these are questions that I cannot answer for you. And I'm actually fairly confident they'll look different for many of you based on your experiences and your upbringings and the relationships and the stories that have shaped you. But I'm confident that there are ways that we can grow our Christian identity to make it be stronger, to make it be center in our lives. And today I wanna, alter, I wanna offer four short ways that we can cultivate and grow our Christian identity to help reorient our identity so that the image that is reflected from our being. And that's what I want you to take away from our sermon this morning. Number one, we can commit to gather here weekly, to break bread together, to pray for each other, to ask for forgiveness for the things that we have done and left undone, to be pardoned and to be renewed for the work that is ahead. Showing up on Sunday is about proclaiming and living into a relationship with Jesus Christ. May the sacrament help us grow daily in our relationship with the living God. Number two, we can pray for our loved ones and we can pray for our enemies together. The first one is easy, the second one not so much. But if we make this a daily practice in our lives, praying for both our loved ones, and if we commit to offering prayers for those people who ab oppose our worldviews or disrupt our lives, especially if we believe that those people exist within our penultimate relationship of citizenry, we can renew our commitment to our fellow brothers and sisters and wear down the divide that is between us. Third, we can give of our time and talent. We can volunteer to help make this world a better place. We can cross boundaries and build relationships with people who come from different walks of life. We can have our understanding of humanity broadened. We can travel, we can serve, we can listen, and we can grow. And finally, our fourth way we can do that, we can give. Today is the kickoff of our stewardship season. You probably noticed these big infographs when you walked in. Many of you should have received a stewardship letter um, in the mail yesterday or today, or you will in the next couple of days. 
The following Sundays, you'll hear stories from Michael Moore and Lindsey Hull and Jeff McCormack. And I will preach more about this on October 30th. Honestly, I was going to make today an entire stewardship sermon. I've been looking forward to this day for the past nine months. If you're, if you're visiting today or you've just been here a few weeks, like, whoa, I've showed up on Stewardship Sunday. Um, I, I got to do it and uh, I got to make the ask. Um, I also, I wholeheartedly believe that however you engage with this place, I pray that that's the right way for you. I'm, and I'm serious about that. But I am convinced more than ever that our culture loves money. And we believe that the purchasing of goods and services with what we have earned will provide us joy, happiness, and well-being. And tying back to Esther, how often do we believe what we can purchase will shape our identity? Think about cars and houses and clothes and goods. I'm as guilty as anybody else. And I know that most of you are wise enough to know that that is not true about purchasing, providing happiness. So I have to invite you to consider that giving as a proportion of our income is a spiritual practice that shapes us, that molds us, that forces us to see that we have enough in our life, that God is present, and that our lives can be a source of blessing. And more is not always the answer. And if you can work towards the tithe, I'm confident that the practice will have a huge impact on your life. Just like communion, when you do it every week, over and over, just like prayer, when you do it over and over, just like service, giving shapes you and it will shape you profoundly. It is a part of allowing our lives to be conformed to the identity of God, of Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for many. Most of you should have or will receive your 2019 stewardship cards in the mail. If you have not, trust me, we'll let anybody participate. My ask to you is that you hold that card in your hands. Hold it. Pray over it. Consider all the different practices you do that shape you as a follower of Jesus Christ. And to consider the power that your money holds over you and how it can shape your spirituality and relationship to God. We often celebrate our gifts of time and talent in our church. On October 30th is when we formally celebrate our gifts of treasure as a practice that helps us reflect the image and identity of Christ. By considering all four of these practices, I invite you to join in this process of growth, discovery, and renewal. And may all of us reveal the identity of Christ in each of us as the ultimate expression of who we are. Amen.